It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly opportunity to sit down with award-winning journalists from throughout the East End to do a deeper dive into the week's news. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, the website 27East.com and Express Magazine. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good panel this week. We have Beth Young, who's the editor of the East End Beacon. Hey, Beth. Good morning. Good to have you. We have Christine Sampson, who is the deputy managing editor of the East Hampton Star. Hey, Chrissy. Hello, everybody. Great to have you. And we have Denise Civiletti, who's the editor of Riverhead Local and who's here despite battling COVID. Uh, You're a trooper, Denise. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. And we're happy to be virtual. (laughs) this morning. We hope you're you're feeling better. So um, we all had some symptoms this week. Uh, I know I did from Mm. uh, coughing and sore eyes from the Canadian wildfires. This is really remarkable, isn't it? And we were talking about the fact that I don't think any of us have really a frame of reference. I grew up in 1970s Pittsburgh, which was famous for being a smoky city, Uh, but nothing like we saw on the East End uh, a couple of days ago, and it seems to be dissipating on Friday. But uh, Denise, this is this is a, a, a example. It's been pointed out. Uh, this is further evidence of climate change. How how does this connect up with climate change? Well, um, because there are more and more intense wildfires. Um, you know, Canada is having sort of a precedent, a record breaking year for wildfires so far. Their, their wildfire season starts in May, a little earlier than the one in the United States. But, um, you know, it's it's come on with a vengeance. And um, there, I looked this morning at the Canadian uh, Environment Fire Interagency Fire Center website, and there were over 400 wildfires burning coast to coast in Canada from, you know, all through the western provinces, all the way to the eastern provinces, 200 and some out of them as of uh, this morning's uh, Friday, uh, were, were still burning out of control. And, um, you know, because of a storm off the coast of Nova Scotia, I guess, the winds were pushing the smoke down south and east onto us. Um, and uh, on Friday, Generally, we should see uh, we'll be seeing better air quality, except potentially on the east end, where it could still be in the unhealthy range because we're further east. You know, one one interesting thing I had a little back and forth with the Riverhead Police Chief about this because he sent out a wet travel and weather advisory that said yes that yesterday uh, Thursday sorry. <laughs> Um, that it was going to be unhealthy for sensitive groups. And I question that because um, the weather advisories that I saw said unhealthy for everyone across the Long Island region, um, including Riverhead. And when he got back to me, he said that that was the word that they got from Suffolk County Office of Emergency Management and the DEC, which... Mm-hmm. I have, I really want to follow up with somebody at the DEC about that because are they telling like the emergency officials something other than what they're telling the press and the public? I thought that was really odd. And mm. I expressed concern because, you know, in this day and age, not to sound like an old, you know, geezer here, but you know, there's so much misinformation about just about every subject that the last thing you need is officials putting out conflicting information about something like this that's a true you know public health emergency and uh, gee where have we seen that but you know <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, you know I so I don't know, I'm gonna follow up with that but just uh, you know FYI to the public I mean you know we I, I know you do the same thing we report what the DEC puts out the the, the air quality advisories that we get and um, you know you can check for yourself. You can go to the uh, the Air Now website um, and t- uh, type in your um, your zip code and get the current air quality uh, right now and from that website. And that Air Now is a um, a website that's uh, done by the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, 
and it pulls together, you know, monitoring air mo air quality monitoring information from sources across the country and Canada and Mexico. So it's a pretty mm -hmm. good resource. It's a good thing to bookmark on on your uh, air. Air now Duckov actually says right now that the air in Riverhead is unhealthy for sensitive groups. Is it okay? Exactly. <laughs> Friday. We're, we're very early Friday on Friday morning. Friday morning. It was Friday morning. Yes. Very early on Friday morning. It was actually under one hundred, so it was moderate. So. I ran yeah, out no, it's, it's, breath. It says moderate, but it also says unhealthy for sensitive groups. So, yeah, well, well, I, um, I mean, it's you. You breathe enough of this stuff, you'll you'll enter a sensitive group pretty quickly. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I know, I mean, but... I'm thinking it changes so so radically too, because I, I was thinking on I believe it was Wednesday night when we left the office. Uh, I was stunned because it, I had. You, you can mm -hmm. catch sort of notes of smoke in the air for a couple of days before that in Southampton. Mm -hmm. But I had I was just shocked at, yeah. at yeah. the level of um, and, and Chrissy, I think it was actually considered unhealthy for everyone. I know that that um, a lot of the directives were don't go out and exercise or do anything, uh, mm -hmm. exert yourself out outside, even if you're not one of these uh, sensitive groups. Yeah. And my um, my question now is like, if if it doesn't dissipate quickly enough, what's going to happen with the races this weekend? I know there's the, I think there's the Montauk mile this week. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, you know, and those are some big community events. Um, that, yeah, and I, yeah, and, and you know, even, you're going to breathe heavy when you're running. I, yeah. Well, I, I think they're going to have to make a decision right before. I think it's important to note too, that even if it looks clear, I mean, even if, if you're not seeing that haze anymore, there's still all these tiny particulates in in the air that that you may not be aware of that that you're breathing in. I know a Good lot point. of sporting events. Some of the uh, so the state high school championships were were canceled this weekend. Others are going on, but I saw this uh, this morning that uh, they might even um, you know close the big is it Belmont Stake Stakes this yeah. weekend, the big horse race, which is yep. you know I mean that's a big economic driver for you know. For the area and, and for the state and you know it's just it's just scary it was, it was maybe I'm, I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> this has yeah, been good for car washes yes <laughs> <laughs> we, we had down farms, the street farms and landscaping companies closing for the day at least mm -hmm. on thursday you know um and i guess maybe this is my me being like so naive but you know i'm 41 years old and covid was like you know, the first, well, not the first, but like a real disaster environmentally and socially and economically. And I guess it's now that it's sort of in the rearview mirror, except for maybe Denise at the, at the moment. But um, <laughs> I thought to myself, wow, I'm experiencing another major, yeah. you know, event in my lifetime. I didn't expect that, especially like one so heavily tied to climate change now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I, yeah. like, I, like, this is me being naive again, but I always thought that you know it's still a ways down the line but it, is it accelerating is it i don't, I don't know i think well, that's I, what's alarming a lot of people beth i think i think people see this as as evidence of how we're going to be dealing with climate change and it's it's happening now yeah, absolutely and i mean i think the you know the overwhelming news this past week has been the smoke but we are in the middle of a drought and and this has been really um a tough time for farmers who have to get out there and move irrigation pipe in this weather because they you know this is a very critical time in their crops growth cycle that they need water um and so, i think it's also connected to what caused the wildfires fires in canada right i believe drought right? conditions contributed absolutely. to that right absolutely yeah. i would yeah. also <laughs> note for everybody to think about this that you know we don't have expansive forest lands like they do in western the united states and in canada here on Long Island, but we do have forest habitat and it is prone to fires. It's part of its natural ecosystem of the Pine Barrens. And yeah. we have had significant um, wildland fires right here. Um, and there was a fire in Ridge just the other day. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we were my husband and I were talking about, you know, the, the uh, big the big Pine Barrens uh, fire in the 1990s and what that did to the air. Like, we, you know, so this isn't exactly the first time that we're experiencing air quality from forest fire uh like kind of similar to this 
Um, but, um, you know, certainly the one that's, you know, the only one I can think of from subject, such a distant place. And, um, you know, we, we need to be aware of the fact that when the winds change, if these fires are burning, you know, it, it can come back. And we yeah. need to be really aware and careful about campfires and, you know, smoking materials and thing, how you discard things, because it just takes one little, you know, thing and it can be a, a catastrophe. I mean, 10, 12 years ago in Manorville, uh, you know, I don't know if you responded to that yourself, Beth, but like that, you know, thousands of acres, it's just, you know, habit, it calls habit, out every fire life. department on the East End. Yeah, every, something every like fire that department responded to I that. I mean, and the the middle of the island, but there are, there's a lot of fuel in the Pine Barrens right now. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a lot of downed trees. There's a lot of trees that were infested by the pine beetles, um, yep. which is and a big problem down on don't. the South Fork as well. I mean, you the way they dealt with the pine beetles, or, they cut the trees and left the trees um, there um, because right. they they didn't transport them away or anything like that. Uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, fuel for a wildfire. Yeah, it's, there was a Flanders Fire Department chief uh, fighting that battle for a number of years with the Pine Barrens Commission because the fire department really wanted to go get in there. And, you know, I mean, trees were, are blocking fire roads, fire access yeah. roads. They can't bring their truck, their brush trucks in. When they responded to fires in Flanders over 24 brush truck, Riverhead mm-hmm. Fire Department lost a, bl- a brush truck responding. I, I was on that call. We got yeah. stuck in the woods on that call. Yeah. Wow. And we so it's get very out. dangerous for the firefighters and it's a lot, you know, not having all this fuel and having actually having roads blocked. Um, and when I say roads, I'm talking about basically dirt roads that are cut in that allow those, those trucks to go, you know, prevent them from actually fighting the fire if it breaks out. Um, there are homes all around that area. I mean, it, you know, it's a dangerous situation. And um, I remember being quite stunned by the answer I finally got after some effort from somebody at the Pine Barrens Commission that, you know, about what's the rationale for not being allowed to cut up and move the dead trees, at least on the fire break roads, you know, because they provide habitat. Mm. Well, it's it's interesting what's actually, this is another story that I'm working on. The um, the Pine Barrens Com- Commission has a, a prescribed fire plan that they're working on. They mm-hmm. actually hired fire crews. Uh, they're working with the DEC fire crews. Um, and they were all set. They had a bunch of plans in place for uh, controlled burns of areas with high fuels and areas that the burns would actually help the habitat um, planned for this year. And uh, the northern long-eared bat, which is um, has been suffering from the white nose disease, which is like a fungal infection that they get in caves, was just listed as endangered. And it happens that Long Island is the one place where this bat is thriving because it doesn't nest in caves here. So mm. their nests are more spread out, and they're not like they're not like giving each other, you know, their social distancing on Long Island, basically. Wow. <laughs> um, so, so that's put made it more difficult for them to even enact these these fire plants. Even if um, ultimately this might prove beneficial to the habitat for the long-eared bat, because they were just listed as endangered, they've got to go through a whole another set of regulatory um, processes before they can um, do controlled burns. So it's all. I mean, all this stuff is so interconnected, and Beth, we're learning more of that every day. When is wildfire season in the Pine Barrens? Mostly in the most of the ones I've seen in the spring, the really yeah. big one was kind of an anomaly that it happened in September. It started in September, so we're in late August. Yeah, we're sort of yeah, in August. wildfire season right now, and and as you mentioned, there is some drought conditions, so it's something to to keep an eye on. But it's it's alarming when when you see how you know. I think for those of us, I, I wasn't here for the big wildfires in the '90s, uh, but you can see the kind of impact. Uh, I was stunned. I don't know if you guys saw the uh, the little uh, graphic illustration on the New York Times website that showed the smoke coming down, yeah. and and it it's very odd that at that kind of large level, it's just like standing beside a bonfire. The smoke sort of billows out mm-hmm. and catches the currents, and so it's just completely unpredictable. And you could see that really bad, thick 
cloud just sort of get blown over the South Fork on Wednesday night. Um, you know, it just it's it it demonstrated how sort of random the whole thing is. But uh, someone mentioned it earlier. These wildfires are going out of control in Canada right now. This is going to be a problem maybe for yeah. for a while longer here, right? Potentially, yeah. So well, it, it back 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 to Chrissy's point. I, I think about uh, you know because I, I, I kind of felt the, I kind of feel the same way. Is it is it here? Is it now? Is this climate change? And I think we were conditioned for so long with, with the thinking climate change is coming, climate change is coming, climate change is coming. Well, climate change is here and it's been here for a long time. And I think you see the effects of it incrementally over time. There's there's not one big, you know, um, apocalyptical, um, you know, incident that says, you know, we're, we're here and, and, it, and it's climate change. I mean, we, we're seeing the waters rise. We're seeing, you know, we're seeing fires. We're seeing, you know, More temperatures. We're seeing... We're, we're seeing all all the effects of climate change, and I think we're just going to be seeing them more and more as we as we try to to deal with them. And this is just one of those indicators that 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 yeah, we're dealing with uh, we're dealing with the effects of climate change. It's not something in the future, and I think that's it was difficult for me to grasp, and I think difficult for a lot of people to grasp because you're looking for that that one big major event but it's it's not it's not uh, it, a know, movie you know the it's... story about the frogs in the pot of water like, yeah so exactly we, like we're the frogs like that's you know and um i think that i mean since this is a show kind of about media right uh i think it bears mentioning that you know there's been this um kind of narrative uh pushed by representatives of industries that benefit from uh you know fossil fuel consumption for example um, and politicians that are beholden to them or just contrarians or don't believe in science, whatever the case may be, for a very long time, you know, there were we had a, a member, every member of the Riverhead Town Board publicly stated that this is not that recently, but that they did not believe in climate mm. change, you know. And, you know, we were we were as reporters, I think, you know, the media in general, just too much and bought into the, you know, well, presenting both sides. And, you know, it's like what we learned through the whole thing with COVID and vaccines and everything, like you, you don't present the the side that's fiction as if it's fact and right. of equal weight, you know. Um, and that, that's been a tough lesson, I think, for all of us to learn, but I think we finally learned it. Do we do we think it's changed? I think the the acceptance of climate change as a reality is pretty universal. I I I tend to agree. Like I think I think so, except for maybe the most fringy kind of people. But you know, but it, you can also make the argument that it might be too late. You know, yeah. um, so if you, you need know. evidence, you can just look out your door right now. And uh, exactly. I, 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 125 seen... degrees in Puerto Rico, drought all over the world, extreme heat, severe storms. It's really depressing, really, and I don't even like to think about it. But mm -hmm. you know, not thinking about it isn't going to make it go away. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, it's so. going to be a smoky summer uh, by the looks of it, at least for a little while, a couple of weeks. Uh, this is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists uh, this week are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Beth Young of the East End Beacon and Christine Sampson of the East Hampton Star. Um, you got a couple of stories up your way this week, Denise, that are worth talking about. One is that Riverhead Town has found itself in court uh, over a recent executive order related to uh, the migrants, the folks who are seeking asylum, who are being uh, sent to New York City. Uh, Riverhead issued, uh, issued an emergency order uh, and it got them in a bit of legal trouble. Tell us about that. I well, saw that coming. Uh, <laughs> so the, um, you know, th this has been a subject that has sparked all kinds of litigation uh, across the state, really, because uh, we, we all know, I mean, it's an old story already, but, you know, the New York City mayor was looking for assistance to, for sheltering, you know, temporary housing for um, asylum seekers. He was the New York City, uh, a New York City contractor uh, contracted with um, a couple of hotels 
upstate, identified three other hotels upstate in different ca- counties upstate, and uh, that they were that were able and willing to take uh, you know provide shelter for migrants paid for by by the city of New York, and um, that touched off um, a bunch of uh, emergency orders uh, from uh, county executives, lawsuits by counties. Um, lawsuits against the city, lawsuits against the hotel operators to block it. And um, for a variety of reasons that are, um, well, that I thought were pretty clear based on statements that were made to me by um, the town supervisor the night that she um, uh, issued the executive order in Riverhead, Riverhead jumped on the bandwagon. And, you know, she issued an executive order. It's since been... um, uh, extended a few times, and um, the other day, the city of New York sued um, 30 municipalities, um, and Riverhead was the only town among them because Riverhead was the only town that um, issued a, an order like this. The the rest of them, including Suffolk County, uh, are all um, counties, and um, it's actually an interesting complaint to read because it it really deta- provides a lot of detail about how like th- how this all came about and what the city has been doing and what it has not been doing. Um, and um, so we we published a story about that. Uh, Alec did a good story about it. Uh, I think we published it yesterday or the day before. I'm losing track. That's the COVID brain, folks. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah. So, um, you know, it remains to be seen what happens. I I could take some guesses, but I know that there were other people looking at potentially bringing an action against the town of Riverhead for an act for. Sorry, this order that people argue was like way beyond the scope of uh, the power of the town to do. the city of New York is arguing that this was beyond the, the authority of all of these entities. But um, I've, I had either uh, also other town supervisors say that's, you know, nuts. They can't do that. Yeah. So. One of the questions I have about this whole issue is, you know, the spotlight is on this group of folks who are seeking asylum. But if it weren't, I feel like this happens all the time, that we have a fairly steady stream of people who legally, using the legal process, turn themselves in at the border. And while their cases are pending, they are allowed to stay in the country waiting for that. And they make their way to places like Riverhead and the East End and upstate New York and they 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 end up here anyway. I don't feel like this is a new phenomenon, is it? I mean, no, this not. happens it happens every day. Uh, well, but but I, I mean I think that the crisis New York City is facing is in large part to Texas busing thousands of these migrants from from the border to New York City and just kind of dumping them and saying you know, I hate to use that term when we're talking about people, but but you know you know, buses of these people that they're just dumping into the city and saying, you guys, you guys deal with it. So it's, it's not, I I mean, I don't, you know, I I mean, it comes, it's it's a large number. It's not the same as people who have, you know, who come across the border, seek asylum. They have sponsors, maybe, you know, locally that that help them financially get here. This, this is, you know, the city is dealing with a group of people that's not in that same situation, perhaps that, you know, that that these are people that don't know where to go and are, are lured into getting onto these buses. And, you know, um, with the promise of, of uh, you know, a better life in, in, in New York, um, you know, either either their choice or not their choice. And and here they are. And so the city has to deal with them. And is, I, I mean, is just like everything else. In this dysfunctional country that we live in, right? I mean, politically, it's completely dysfunctional. But this is just one, like a huge political football. I mean, and it has been, and it's been that way purposely. I mean, it reminds you know, think about like bail reform, or you Mm -hmm. know, how about Merry Christmas, everybody? You know, I mean, it's the same pattern over and over again. This is the latest, uh, you know, example of it. Um, The narrative that's being pushed vocally and you know, adamantly is that 
you know, this is a crisis created by Biden for uh, opening the borders, which is something that has not happened. In fact, Biden, the Biden administration has put into place some very actually repressive uh, rules when it comes to asylum seekers. Like, but at the same time, has accommodated in some ways and trying trying some new things to well, accommodate them and set up a system where I they mean, don't have to come to the border. He, yeah, but he's forcing people to stay in another place. He, you know, the administration is forcing people to stay in another place for potentially for years without, you know, where they don't have somebody who can help them, et cetera. And they're in, you know, in camps you know, and it's dangerous. But I mean, that's it's it's like they, they were complaining about how Title 42 the Republicans, because all of the all of the executive orders are not almost all the executive orders were uh, Republican county executives. I mean, it's totally a, a very political issue, and and um, so 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 there's that there's there's that narrative. The other narrative is that well, you know, New York City, you want to be a sanctuary city. This is what you get here. Yeah, deal with it. You know, and right. that you know, I mean, in point of fact, the that yes, New York is has declared itself a sanctuary city, but that's not why they had a commitment to house homeless people and all homeless people. That dates back to a 1981 decision, um, a consent order that was signed by the city of New York after a lawsuit that requires them to house all homeless. Like that. So when I when I hear like you know, the presiding officer of the Suffolk County Legislature and our congressman from Amityville, um, Nick LaLota, talking about how, you know, while this is New York City brought this upon itself and you are not going to, you know, don't look at us to solve your problems. Well, you know, in fact, this is a longstanding legal obligation of the city based on that consent order from so many years ago that was a result of an action brought by homeless advocates back in the early 1980s, which you know, I was living in New York City at that time, and they were homeless. I mean, it's gotten bad again now, but they were they were homeless everywhere, like you know, on the streets everywhere. Um, so, you know, but they everything gets kind of like twisted around for some political end, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what we're seeing again with this. And it's just it's it's and as Bill Bill pointed out, it's people at the heart of it, and we yeah. forget that sometimes. I think Beth, you wanted to yeah. add Sorry. something. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's important to realize that, you know, p- people who are seeking asylum are barred from working here for the first 150 or 160 days that they're here. So if they come here with very little money or no money, you know, they have no way to house themselves. So if we could let them work, they could find a way to house themselves and then they could, wouldn't be used as this political football. But that's it's very controversial to say, let let people work, even though we have labor shortages everywhere here. It's such a complicated issue because of that. I think if you let people yeah. work as soon as they get here, it's considered an incentive for more people to come. And it, right. it, it, yeah. but but I think someone said it earlier that that we just don't have a policy right now to deal with this. It's a it's a right. there hasn't been you know, there's been so many conversations over the years that have been purportedly bipartisan, but we've never been able to come up with a deal that works because, Denise, quite frankly, I feel like it's a good political football. It, sure. it scores points. And despite the bill, Bill's point that these are people that are being used as pawns, but, but they make really good uh, political fodder and you can yeah. score big points. And they're people that are repeatedly demonized by public officials that use their platforms to speak out and do that. And call them all kinds of names. They de- they demonize them. They they dehumanize them. Um, I mean, this is something that you know the community's been dealing with for a number of years now. And you know, there's there, there's so much hatred toward the Latino community fueled by that kind of talk. And that's another thing. In speaking with Minerva Perez from um, Ola of uh, Eastern Long Island, you know. Well, this kind of this kind of thing, the state of emergency, et cetera, like it, it encourages people to hate the people who are already here. Never mind the asylum seekers who might come here, you know, right. because everybody who's, you know, brown skinned and speaks Spanish is is, you know, a target. Um, I will also just say, like, here's I, I like an, 
presumably unintended consequence of the state of emergency order. But so there was a bomb scare at Riverhead Center, a big shopping center on Route 58. And uh, my younger daughter was there taking some pictures of the police vehicles and stuff. And the poor kid, unfortunately, looks a lot like me. So she gets this all the time. Somebody comes over to her and says, oh, are you Denise's daughter? (laughs) And she says, yes, never knowing what's going to happen next. And he just, yeah, it was fine. But but he said, he goes, you see, because we've editorialized about that, the supervisor's um, uh, state of emergency order. He goes, you see, the supervisor was right issuing that emergency order. You see what's happening? Now, this had absolutely nothing to do with, you know, as far as anyone knows, any asylum seekers or anything like what, but like people conflate all kinds of things. And, you know, fear fear does that. Fear makes people make connections that that can be politically advantageous to one side. Just fosters hate. Yeah, absolutely. People need to be mindful of that. There's another story that you report on this week out of Riverhead that I, I feel like in some ways is ancillary to this. And that is the fatal fire that took place, um, because I, I think the pressure for for housing throughout the region uh, can lead to some illegal housing uh, and puts people at risk. And, and you had a fatal fire in Riverhead that you wrote extensively about. And we had a ruling this week that I think shows part of the problem, which is there isn't a whole lot of enforcement. And even when there is enforcement, it's not very severe. What Tell, tell us about this. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's kind of a complicated situation. So this was this was a, a house with, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four apartments. The landlord lived in the apartment on the ground floor. Um, an older woman, single person. Um, it was a beautiful home. It was really a beautiful home, historic home built in like 1905. Um, And she had two apartments on the second floor and another apartment on the third floor. So she had three rental apartments in this dwelling. Um, There was, you know, we we did some foils and things and we found a lot of interesting things in the enforcement uh, file. There's some there was conflicting information among the town officials and conflicting decisions about whether it was legal to have that third floor apartment. And um, the issue with the third floor apartment is there was no second means of egress. Um, and Which is something that would have been found had it been a legal rental, right? Well, this apartment, this is where it gets very sticky and will be interesting to see what shakes out of the lawsuit <laughs> that's pending. but. Um, the the uh, the town actually did issue permits for that third floor apartment. At some point, they said years ago, no, it doesn't have the second means of egress. We can't, you know, you can't get a permit for it. And then at other points, they issued permits for reasons that you know. And so, this the owner of this property had a, had permits for these, and they expired. It was during COVID. She didn't respond to notices to uh, renew the permits in a reasonable amount of time. And in October of 2021, the town, after several visits, we saw through the FOIL request, after several visits to the um, to the building, the code enforcement officials issued these three summonses, one for each apartment for rental without a permit. And before they were returnable in court, the house burned down. And five members of a family, uh, all Guatemalan natives, um, perished in that third floor apartment, trapped in a room at the front of the house um, because there was no second means of egress. And that's what the county police report, you know, determined the county police investigators. And, um, you know, it's it's, it's heartbreaking. So what was the ultimate fallout for the property owner then for these, the permits? Well, that's what we reported this week, Joe. Thank you. Um, the, um, the property owner entered a guilty plea this week to all three violations and was charged, uh, assessed a penalty of $500 each. Um, at the time that the permits, the, I'm sorry, the violations were issued, the code 
the town code that you know the rental permit code had uh, a range for, for uh, penalties for a first time offense of two fifty to one thousand dollars, and um, they uh, the town attorney told me this week that he from the first appearance in court he offered a you know they the town attorney's office offered a five hundred dollar per you know and for whatever reason this is going back now how long right was issued October 2021. I don't know when the first court date was. I don't remember. But they keep it. They have continued to adjourn it. Um, and um, they they entered that plea um, this week. So, so. I, objectively speaking, I feel like if I'm someone out in the community who has illegal rentals, I'm not sure this is a deterrent. A, a deterrent. It, it it's it it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of now of course in this case as you mentioned there will be a civil lawsuit and, there is and, already one pending yeah yeah and, so, and, so know, i mean i mean just, i just think there's, there's when you say illegal rentals though joe and and i'm not defending um the, this this landlord but these were expired permits not somebody mm-hmm. who, who has who has a a, a shoddy apartment that you know that they throw the 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 wiring together or whatever, and that's, then that's rent, rent it out. And, and I think you know there's a distinction here. And, and uh, but but to Joe's know. point, though, does the code deter that? And they they have actually they've since amended the code. They've increased the penalties significantly, and they've also done things to require sprinklers and a second means of egress for third floor apartments. Um, <laughs> so. It, were but, these building permits or rental permits? Rental permits. Rental permits. Okay. So they just okay. had one for the first year and they didn't renew it. That- well, she had yeah. permits for many years, this woman. Right. Um, she's okay. owned the building for many years, but they were just yeah. expired. They expired during COVID. Right. And I will say this. I mean, it's a terrible tragedy, but, yeah. you know, this person, the landlord, is, you know, kind of a sympathetic figure because mm-hmm. it wasn't like a slumlord that had a bunch of, I and mean, we have plenty of those and I can, na- right. I could, you know, I, not to get sued here, but we, I could take them off in one hand, you know, <laughs> off the top of my head. Up um, here too. But yeah, but, yeah. but this is, you know, she lived at the house. Um, she, you know, this was essentially her only real asset from what I understand. I think she's selling the house now. Um, and she has, and her apartment. Her, she lost her apartment and everything. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a tragedy all the way around. Like she was not a culpable individual. I don't mean to demonize the person who owns this property. I I suspect it is a lot more complicated. But taking the fifty thousand foot view, it does feel like if you are a landlord out there who is less than responsible in getting, in getting oh, yeah. permits and things, I feel like this was a demonstration that there there's not a lot of teeth right now in the regulations to to right. to change that and I, I feel like that may be something that needs to be fixed uh, if they had had another mode of egress the rental yeah. permits would not come into play so much because they could have gotten out of the building i mean the yeah. town should have made yeah. sure that that was in place yeah then and it remains to be seen how sure. that switched over. You know what I mean? Like there right, was a yeah. point in time where the town changed its mind. And the question is why? And so I'm right. assuming that'll get, you know, sorted out. So terrible tragedy. The, and you, you've, you've stayed on, on to someone else with happier things to talk about. <laughs> yes. You've, you've stayed on top of that story though. For uh, <laughs> There there are so many apartments in on the East end without a second mode of egress. It's, it's a real problem. Yeah. Mm. It needs to be addressed. Mm. I think that's probably the big takeaway. This is yeah. Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists this week are Chrissy Sampson of the East Hampton Star, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Beth Young of the East End Beacon. Chrissy, uh, both of our newspapers have reported uh, in East Hampton, there is a push now to add lights to an athletic field at the high school. Talk about uh that is that being well received what's the the situation in east hampton so it's not um it was not a unanimous school board vote to move forward with the lights but the proposal is for a group of community parents to fundraise some eight hundred fifty thousand dollars to install led lights at the edges of the turf field on their football you know their football lacrosse you know field that's basically right next to the high school building 
and also abuts a couple of residential properties. Um, and the folks who live in those properties, at least one of them was there before the school was even built. And now it's a question of, you know, being a good neighbor. And I think that, you know, in a couple of previous cases, so the family and some of their friends are opposed to the lights um, for quality of life reasons, you know, quality of life issues that I'm sure we can all, you know, imagine and extrapolate from this. But, um, you know, the the fellow leading the effort has a history of making things happen like this with um, regard. He was involved in the Montauk Skate Park fundraising um, and raised, helped raise nearly double that amount for the skate park. Um, and so I think that it has momentum there. And, you know, I feel like the family who lives there, um, is really conflicted too, because one of, one of the family members is a current teacher in the East Hampton school district. And I got the sense that she was very, you know, very reluctant. She didn't want to come across as not supporting the kids that she helps educate, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a lot of sensitive topics. They're they're claiming that they were promised by the the school that there would never be lights on 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 that field, right? I mean, correct, it, yeah. Whether um, whether, and, whether that was an actual promise or or whether that was you know it's not our intention at the time, I think it's kind of interesting that you know that that that's the claim. Yeah, and I do you know in my mind I'm sort of like likening it to a few years back when the school district wanted to build a bus barn on Cedar Street. And there was a big push by community members to help relocate it elsewhere. Now it's on Springs Fireplace Road, yeah. away from residences pretty much. And, um, you know, it's in a more industrial part of town um, that, you know, the school district responded and was a good neighbor in that way to consider other options other than its own property in on, on uh, Cedar Street. Um, you know, and that comes to mind. And then, you know, they have they have this electronic sign out front of the high school that was a sort of like a compromise when they put that in and like residents hated it. So they came up with a very strict policy. You know, it won't be illuminated past like 8 p.m. And mm. there can't be certain types of messages like illuminating animation on the board, on the on the sign. Um, you know, so I feel like East Hampton has good intentions. You know would, that would, they'll would, act would in there good be, faith. Would there be would would there be room to 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 put the field somewhere else? I don't um, see how lights? it could happen I, without. I think I, one of the neighbors had mentioned that, but yeah, I don't I don't know where you would do that. I I hear there's some land available on Marsden Street in Sag Harbor. I, maybe. I was going to oh. say the echoes the <laughs> echoes to the Marsden controversy can't can't be ignored. I mean, you know. But I, thought, I think it's interesting too, Chrissy, that the the neighbors have said it's not just the lights; it's yeah. that lights will change the nature of the use of that field. That it'll be used later in the evening. There'll be bigger crowds. There'll be more kids uh, later on in the evening. That's part of the concern, right? It's not just lights. Yeah, and she said that you know, like she meaning you know Ms. Column Gibbons, and she was saying that there are situations and behaviors, she describes situations and behaviors that already occur. Yeah. Um, you know, and I do feel for them, you know, who, who, who wants that next door, but, you know, at the same time, some of the parents speaking in favor of it make a good point in our location out here. We're so isolated that when school buses bringing kids from Miller place and Rocky point and, you know, the Islips, they, they get here and they may not even be able to play the game, the soccer game, because it's 5.30 p.m. in October and they don't have any more daylight. They're running out of daylight and the game gets called or the game gets canceled, you know, and it, it, it impacts those kids. It It's also related to the school bus driver shortage because some of those districts can't get their bus on the road until they finish bringing all the other students home for the day. And it's it's a multifaceted issue, you know. It, it reaches into a lot of corners of operations and community relations, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, it's you know, as space gets tight here, we're getting more and more of these issues where where neighbors uh, object to the way neighboring properties are being used, and it uh, creates some stress. So, 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 so there's the um, 
so, so funding for this lighting would would be through through fundraising. Um, yeah, donations. And, and I'm, I'm and, just wondering how how everybody feels about that. I, I, maybe there's no difference between you know that and a booster club, but when you have somebody coming pledging to come in with almost a million dollars, I think we're talking about eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and donating this to the school. If it was if it was somebody trying to do that to to the town or a village, there would it would raise some eyebrows because then people would ask, well, what do you expect back for that? And, and I think right, obviously right, these right. people have the have good intentions. They have they have you know kids who play sports and and they want to you know um, you know make that a better experience for for students and and for their kids. But um, it seems like a large donation to a school district for 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 lights on them and i'm not sure how that how that works it's not unprecedented because i think that the donation from residents for the bus barn situation to buy that land on springs fireplace road for the district that was a couple million if i'm not mistaken okay so you know there there is a precedent for it but nobody really raised that eyebrow because you know there were more people in agreement on that particular matter i wonder if it you changes know? the and dynamic still a little early stage yeah. I wonder if yeah. it changes the dynamic a little because the school board itself is not proposing it. They're allowing it, um, but that yeah, didn't yeah. generate the, with the school board. There still yeah. has to be, it's still going to go through a state environmental review. So they still have to get that secret determination, state environmental quality review act. I think that was, is what secret means. And, yeah. um, you know, they have to approve a statement that says this will have no effect on the environment or will have an effect on the environment, then there's more study that has to occur. And now it also would have to get approved by the state education department, which has hundreds and hundreds of capital projects in the pipeline and like a six to eight month backlog of time to take to review those projects by the state department. You know what I mean? Like state education department. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about- so it. this is not gonna be a- I'm sorry. It's not gonna be a quick process. You're talking what about were you saying, Bill? I, I say okay. you're talking about environmental review, and I think it's important to note that we're talking about LED lights here, which have much less impact on dark skies and, and and all that, and they're they're really able to be focused in on the field, and there's not a lot of light pollution that that comes from LED lights. Um, and they're you know they're, excuse me they're they're programmable, and the coach would be able to use a um, you know, a, a, a phone app to be able to to control the lights and turn them on and turn them off, and um, and you wouldn't get the same kind of noises from from a generator from temporary lights and all that. So that's absolutely I, I think, true. I, I, I think that you know it's a it's a smart way to go about it. If you're going to put lights on a field, this is the way to do it. But but you know, again, that, I don't know that that makes the neighbors feel any better that you know that have been there for for so long and and want to help you know. To be be good be be good promoters of the school and and all that and good neighbors, but you you want the school to be a good neighbor too. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that's absent right now, um, but well intentioned, obviously, is um, the idea of creating a strict school board policy. They don't have a policy in place governing, you know, those lights. That would be forthcoming. That they all said, you know, most of the board members said, "I'm approving this." with the intention that we're going to make a strict policy and mm -hmm. stick to it you know yeah, the devil just... will be in the details there you gotta, exactly yeah i'll get it worked out we'll keep an eye on that uh both papers i'm sure we'll be reporting on that moving forward uh mm -hmm. we have a couple minutes left and beth young i want to give you a chance to talk about a story uh, you wrote about a repair cafe that was held on the north fork what what is a repair cafe yeah the uh the north fork environmental council has been starting um uh, the East End version of a repair cafe, which is where uh, neighbors volunteer to help neighbors repair things. Um, oh. And this is an idea that's really taken off in other parts of the country that I guess are a little more uh, crafty than Long Island. <laughs> um, there, there's one almost every weekend in the Hudson Valley. Um, so they had one in Aquabog at the uh, Riverhead Town Senior Center last week. They've had two at Floyd Memorial Library in Greenport. 
And um, there were a lot of repeat customers who came into the one in Aquabog. They'd been to Greenport with broken things, and then they went home and found more broken things. What, 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 what kinds of broken things are we talking about? Like toasters and lawnmowers? Toasters, and... Uh, lawnmowers, bicycles, lamps, yeah. uh, clothes that need sewing, jewelry that needs repaired. The wow. rule is you have to be able to carry it in with you. Okay. Um, so, um, so this is all kind of part of... Um, one of the big things the Northwark Environmental Council has been concerned about is um, the Brookhaven landfill is closing next year, and we have to figure out what we're going to do with all of our garbage. Um, so um, one of the things they're trying to do is get people to, to repair more things. Now, this is, you know, it's really more about changing mindsets than necessarily taking a lot of things away from the waste stream because, um so you realize when you bring things to be repaired that are meant to break that um that they were planned to break um <laughs> and obsolescence is like built into our right. uh, consumer economy um so that's sort of helps people get in the mindset of you know if i bought something and it was cheap there's a reason it was cheap and maybe who's, i have to rethink my buying patterns after this who's doing the repairing i mean is is it you know you bring in your your toaster and there's somebody who brought in their lamp that knows about toasters and or or are there or are there there are people there that that are just good with this stuff that you know that are doing yeah. the repairs they have several repair coaches uh that are just lined up so they have one guy who's a welder he actually comes down from um from the hudson valley his girlfriend oh, lives wow. comes down comes down to see her and uh welds some things for people he also sharpens knives and things like that um, uh, they have a couple of people who do sewing. One of them, uh, I was talking to her. She said, you know, she was, she was, had her needle and thread and was sewing. She said, well, I'm actually, um, one of the founding board members of the Tesla science center. And we, uh, you know, we did all this for Tesla. So sewing on a button is no problem for me. Um, but there That's are things that so they can't cool. do. Like one person brought in a guitar with a broken neck and they just said, look, you know, this, this is something that's under a lot of tension. Uh, you really need a, a professional luthier. So um, they work together, but they're all very, um, very. The goal uh, is just to sort of slow down the, the waste stream a little bit, right? It's the same thing as I know Southampton Town recently rein, reinstated a policy to let, you know, to create sort of a space at the at the transfer station where people can recycle. And I know that was always a big popular thing at the East Hampton transfer station, too, is where people could find you know trash to treasures items and keep them out of the waste stream so that's really yeah, cool yeah. stuff there's, there's a petition happening there all day <laughs> there's a petition ha happening in east hampton to get that restarted at the at the east hampton dump so yeah i mean it's yeah. it's you know like it's kind of kind event. of a, Definitely kind of a cool thing and, and definitely environmental in its own way. We are out of time, folks. Uh, I want to thank our panelists this week. Christine Sampson of the East Hampton Star, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Beth Young of the East End Beacon. Thank you, guys. We appreciate you being here. Yeah. Thank you also to my co-host, Bill Sutton. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw, and uh, thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another edition of Behind the Headlines. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.